Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, we're talking about the 25th anniversary of Wayne's World with the film's director, Penelope Spheris. It all came together in some sort of magical way where the planets were lined up right, the chemistry of the right people. Everybody was at the peak of their game. Very seldom in life did things line up like that. And we'll review everything now. The new album from Arcade Fire. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and we'll get to our conversation with director Penelope Spheris soon. But first, we've got a new album to review, Greg. That is Everything Now, the title track from the fifth studio album from Arcade Fire, one of the leading independent rock bands in the world, now signed with a major label, Columbia Records Artists, Arcade Fire. Uh, Formed in Montreal in 2001, debut album in 2004, Funeral, was gushingly reviewed in the uh, indie press and became one of the best-selling indie rock records of its time. They followed up with uh, Neon Bible in 2008. The Suburbs was the big mainstream breakthrough. It was a surprise winner of the 2011 Grammy Album of the Year. Followed up in 2013 with kind of a left turn, a record that mm-hmm. probably the first crack in the armor, so to speak. Here was a, a disco record that got some mixed reviews for the first time in the band's career. It was called Reflector, and now four years later, we have the fifth studio album, Everything Now. It was produced by Thomas Bangalter of Daft Punk and pulp bassist Steve Mackey. We're going to play our track from it before we review it. It's called Signs of Life from Arcade Fire, Everything Now on Sound Opinions. Those cool kids stuck in the past, apartments of cigarette ash. Wait outside until it begins, won't be the first ones in. Spend your life waiting in line, you find it hard to define, but you do it all the time. Signs of life, looking for signs every night, but there's no signs. 
Signs of Life by Arcade Fire from the new album Everything Now. Greg, um, I do love that track, and I love the title track, Everything Now. Uh, I don't necessarily love the first reprise or the second reprise of yeah. the title track. There, there are theoretically uh, 13 songs on this record, but really only 10, because in grand overstated, uh, dare I say, bombastic fashion, Arcade Fire has these couple of songs come back and forth. Um, look, people have been groomed from the beginning of this band to hear their new work as massive statements, mm-hmm. all right? Not for nothing did they open shows for U2 a while back. They've got a touch of that arena thing in them. I think generally it has worked in their favor because despite this huge sound, uh, there's always been an intellectual substance and an emotional core. Um, that is less so on this album, um, not for lack of trying. I think this is the most uh, ordinary collection of songs Arcade Fire ever has given us. And there are some very, very good songs. Everything Now, Sign of Life. I'm loving those. Um, they are daring, I think, in that Octung Baby U2 way to even laugh at themselves. On Creature Comfort, Wynn Butler tells us about a girl who dreams of dying all the time, possibly considering suicide. She filled up the bathtub and put our first record on. Assisted suicide, she dreams about dying all the time. She told me she came so close, filled up the bathtub and put on our first record. From any other band, I don't think that would be funny. Uh, but from, they're laughing at themselves. They're, you know, they're, they're, their breakthrough was funeral, okay? Um, I think laughing at themselves is good. I think their turn toward dance music on Reflector was good. There were more ambitious uh, things going on with Reflector, though. Whether it was the New Orleans uh, second line thing or the Haitian uh, percussion that they were incorporating, here we just have a lot of songs that wish they were ABBA songs. The best of them are, and the rest uh, kind of falls short. I've got three songs that give me hives, I swear. So at its best... Uh, on the buy it, try it, trash it scale. I, I gotta say, this is a try it arcade fire record. Yeah, Jim, at uh, you know that uh, uh, Twitter language, um, yeah, you know this is <laughs> yeah. one. Of, uh, this is a meh <laughs> album. It's. Uh, I, I'd add uh, add another couple of songs that don't work for me in addition to the ones that you'd mentioned. Infinite content, both versions of that song. Like, but, but, you know, it's a good intellectual idea lyrically because what Wynn is singing about is we are now at such saturation point in the digital media universe that it's like his quote, every song ever is playing at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the concept of we're overstimulated but underinspired. Yeah. I, I seem to recall Radiohead, uh, you know, delving into this topic about 20 years ago. Yeah, they're the or masters. Granddaddy, you yeah. know, with the software slump. Uh, it's been around. It's not a new topic. Um, but mostly what I'm not hearing is inspiration musically. I think they're sort of searching around uh, for new sounds and not necessarily getting there. You've got some experimentation with reggae dance hall. You've got horns uh, prominently figuring on a record and not to the best effect. Disco-y vibes, those are in the air. LCD sound system is back yeah. and so is Spoon experimenting yeah, with but, dance but, rhythms. You know, it's a little too much Casey and the Sunshine Band and not enough Chic. 
You know, exactly. It, it, it is sort of a second-rate disco record in some ways. Uh, it, it is not something that makes me want to get on the dance floor. It's kind of like, yeah, they sound like white guys trying to be a disco band, you know? It's not exactly uh, connecting on that level. But there are a couple of brilliant pop moments, un- undeniable. I think Creature Comfort's a great song. I love those Blade Runner synths. I think they've made a line for the year, God make me famous. If you can't, just make it painless. That's a that's a pretty good line, you know, summing up the concerns of a, of a generation in a way uh, about what, what this life is leading to. So there are moments on this record that are great, but there are not enough of them mm-hmm. to truly make it a great Arcade Fire record. So it was a try it for me. A double try it from us on the new Arcade Fire. But what are your thoughts about this record? We want to hear from you. Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. After a break, we'll talk with Wayne's World director, Penelope Spheris. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a little snippet of the theme song used for the 1992 film Wayne's World, directed by our guest today, Penelope Spheris. Now, Penelope, she began her directing career filming shorts with the great Albert Brooks on Saturday Night Live. Many people don't even know that. Yeah, it's an amazing little anecdote about her career. And after getting sort of burned out on that Hollywood scene, she started making uh, independent documentaries, a game changer, the decline of Western civilization uh, beginning in 1981. You know, The Decline uh, Part 1, Greg, is one of the all-time great punk rock films. Entertaining for different reasons was Part 2, which looked at the uh, developing hair metal scene. I didn't like it for the music, but Penelope caught a different version of the rock dream very convincingly in that film. And then there's even a third decline of Western civilization where she looks at gutter punk. I think that's uh, more of a work of of sociology and, and great kind of street journalism than it is music. But clearly to the core of her being, this woman is a rock fan. She got a call back when from Lorne Michaels of SNL to direct the film version of what had been a successful skit, Wayne's World. Two guys, Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, sitting in the basement pretending to be zonked out heavy metal fans, right? How do you make this into a movie? People were, were kind of wary about that. But the 1992 film, I'm sorry, it's one of the all-time <laughs> classics uh, in pop culture, certainly in rock and roll. Penelope, we are honored to have you on, the director of Wayne's World and so much else. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Well, thank you very much. 
when you were when you were making Wayne's World, all right, mm-hmm. it's early on in your career. It's Mike Myers' first movie. You know, did you ever think that decades later people would would hold it in such esteem and want to be talking to you about it? You know, as if it was no. Citizen Kane. No, no, I never. It never occurred to me or any of us that it would actually hold up this long. It's been amazing. People still love it. It's crazy. What do you think it is that I mean? You know, Greg and I uh, have have hosted this this show with two guys uh, talking about music they love uh, for twelve years now. Obviously, mm. we have a fondness uh, of thinking about uh, you know two doofuses in, in on the couch talking about music they love. <laughs> you know, how do you make a movie? Well, it was a, out a of that? sketch. It was a Saturday Night Live sketch, right? And you turned it into a whole movie. I mean, were, did you think well, it had that kind of potential? That was the big fear that the studio Paramount had was, how are you going to make a movie out of that little sketch? And, you know, Bonnie and Terry Turner, the writers, and Mike, and Dana as well, I mean, we all pitched in to try to, you know, make it as uh, funny and rich and cool of a movie as possible. But we never thought it would make the money that it did. We never thought 25 years later people would still be talking about it. We just wanted to get through to the end of the shoot, you know? I mean, not a huge budget, $14 million. It ends mm-hmm. up making $180 million and counting mm-hmm. uh, since then, and it continues to be shown to a capacity audience. I hope you're getting some of the residuals on that, Penelope, by the way. I hope you're still getting paid for that well, movie. Well, here's the thing. When Paramount was going to do the movie, they, it didn't even remotely occur to them that it may have this kind of box office or staying power. So they... They were generous enough to give me a large percentage of it, and I'm actually really, really rich. <laughs> <laughs> That's refreshing because we talked to the Spinal Tap fellows. Oh, yeah. They got didn't, screwed. They didn't make a dime off yeah. of that movie. Is they, that right? The yeah. second oh. greatest movie of yeah, rock history. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I almost directed that one, too. But here's the thing. I, I feel very fortunate that, um, you know, we lucked out with the movie and that my agent was smart enough to say, hey, give her a percentage and that Paramount's still sending the checks. It's like I was raised in a trailer park, you know. It's like I didn't have any money and I didn't make any money till I was like 45 years old when I did Wayne's World. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I get all these people saying, oh, what am I going to do, man? I'm in the movie business and I can't make any money. And I'm like, you're 20 years old. Come back when you're 45, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Patience and perseverance. That's right. Let's go back to the beginning, Penelope. You grew up uh, in New Orleans? Actually, I was born in New Orleans, and my father owned a carnival, and my mom was the ticket taker, and we traveled all through the South. So all, all of us four kids were born in different states. Like, the, you know, whenever she was going to pop one, they'd stop. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then get right back on the road. And get back right on the road. There you go. What are your earliest memories of, of falling in love with music? Because with the decline oh. films, with, with the use uh-huh. of the soundtrack, and everything you've done has this uh, musical consciousness. Do you remember when you when you fell in love with music? I think probably around the same time most people do. You know, it's that those teenage years, early, like tweener kind of years, you know, where you're just trying to find your identity and everything. And uh, for me, luckily, it was like right around when rock and roll first started. So, you know, I had Elvis and Chuck Berry and all the classics, you know, and that's when I was 10, 11 years old. So I'm like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, you know. And that's when it started. And I think as time went on and my mother started getting married to the tune of nine times total, I would like have difficult times during uh, that growing up. And so I would turn to music and find comfort. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You obviously were hugely interested in the film medium. You started working on Saturday Night Live and uh, did those shorts with Albert Brooks, which really started both of your careers, two extraordinary careers starting in this place. And I remembered those Brooks uh, shorts as being Mm -hmm. extraordinary. Like what, you know, it it was a little bit of a different flavor for that show at that time. First today, we'll visit comedy take class. Here the students practice all kinds of takes. The double take, the elbow take, and today, they're working on the spit take. All right, now that was pretty good, but I'd like to try it just one more time in the same way. Now remember, I've just walked into the room. Now start to drink. Good. Now I speak. Guess what? I just heard from the bank, and not only don't you have any money, but your sister is dead. Did you always see yourself as a filmmaker who incorporated music, or did you want a music career no, at any point? No, here's the thing. Back in the day, you know, being a woman, you didn't even dare say you were going to be a director, okay? Mm. So I was in film school in the late 60s, early 70s, and and then right after that, I um, I met Lauren, and he introduced me to Albert. He calls me up, and he goes, Hey, ben- uh, Penelope, I found this guy, and he's really funny, mm-hmm. and uh, well, he doesn't know how to make movies, and you do, so will you show him? And I said... <laughs> I said, of course I will. And so that's how um, I started producing those shorts for Albert. But I have to thank Albert because he really taught me a lot about Hollywood because I didn't know anything about it. And, um, you know, he, he, he taught me how to be neurotic. Like, if you're in a room for four years, that's what it was with Albert Brooks, you, you walk out nuts, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> and then I worked with Richard Pryor, actually, before I even worked with Albert. I don't know how this happened to me in my life, but I ended up with a lot of amazing comedians, you know? Mm-hmm. Not easy people to work with, I imagine, because all perfectionists, right? Uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, I figured out, you know, uh, that it's it's a cross between insanity and genius, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think it works really well together when people that are crazy geniuses are creative, you know. And I mean, that certainly applies, I think, to and I, I mean that as a compliment, you know, I don't mean it as an insult because I like crazy and I like genius, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I like those kind of people. But um yeah, I've I've been fortunate enough to work with Mike Myers and a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Knowing that you came up with Elvis and Chuck Berry and, and 50s rock, there's a thing in certain people's lives where they stop listening at a certain point. And yet mm-hmm. if we just look at the three Decline of Western Civilization films, you know, punk comes along, you're not freaked out, you want to understand it. And you make one mm-hmm. of the best films about punk rock ever, you know. Hair metal is happening. The, the metal stuff is on in, in the uh, late 80s, and you want to understand it. Uh, same thing with gutter punk. Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, it, it seems like you're almost uh, sociologically minded. You said before that in those difficult days of your mom's remarriages, you know, you found comfort in music. You want to understand the musical communities that come mm-hmm. up, I've always thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the culture, uh, and also just understand human behavior. You know, I think at the core, of my filmmaking is just trying to understand why we humans behave the way we do, you know. For me, it's like that's the most important part, and the music is a um, a way to show it, you know. Mm. Uh, my interpretation of, of um, different generations, um, just cultures, you know. Why don't you uh, cut your hair like that? Because I'm searching. <laughs> <laughs> he knows where it's at now. 
And I'm looking for something. And where it's at, it's a search. He's tried, so far he's tried, uh, he's tried punk rock, he's tried, uh, Jesus. Jesus. What are you searching no. for? I really don't know. Now I'll find, I'll know when I find it. Was there, was there a moment when you, you said, I've got to do this movie? Uh, I'm talking about the, your directorial debut, The Decline of Western Civilization, 1981. You know, punk rock wasn't exactly like a, a hot ticket. You know, I'm going to make millions <laughs> doing this punk rock movie. No. And yet, you, you know, you're one of the primary documents of, of a very important part of L.A. music's evolution. And, and in that scene in particular, you, you got all the important bands, Black Flag and Circle Jerks and X and Fear, Germs, uh, mm-hmm. in that movie. Uh, was there a moment when you said, I've got to do this? I mean, was there, do you remember how that sort of evolved into a movie? You know, it was crazy because I was working with Albert and uh, Albert and all of his buddies, you know, it was James Brooks and Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner and we're all hanging out together. And Albert was saying, oh, I'm such a great producer. And they said, why don't you go over and try and get this uh, gig doing this uh, Goldie Hawn movie at Warner Brothers called uh, Private Benjamin. And I said, you know what? I'm not really down with this producing thing because it was really getting hard there working with Albert. So I said, I'm... I'm going to uh, direct a punk rock movie mm-hmm. and a documentary. And they laughed so hard at me. <laughs> they, You know, they made fun of me, honestly, because they're comedians and they like to make fun of people. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, um, it was it was kind of hard to keep going. Uh, but I knew that I had this intense um, interest in not only the music, but this new kind of culture. Because punk rock, I think, changed everything when it happened in the late 70s. Were you immersed in the club scene? Did you go out and see bands quite a bit during that period of time? How did you come across? Because that you had, it was almost like you had to know where to go. I mean, these gigs weren't, like, well-publicized. You would no, find a flyer yeah. on a lamppost, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how was it there that There was you, no social media. <laughs> right, right. How, how were you sort of engaged with that scene? Well, I was very um, much engaged with it before I thought to make the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was actually sort of the... Like, I, I, I took the nosedive into Hollywood working with Albert and Lorne, and then I've always kind of had, you know, that outcast one foot in the left side of the world because of being on the carnival, you know. And so when I saw the punks, I'm like, I kind of relate to these guys more than I do Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I, I started, um, you know, I had a um, music video company back then called Rock and Reel. I think it was the only one around, really. And I was shooting music videos for the record company, so I had equipment all all the time. And so I would shoot, you know, Seals and Crofts and Fleetwood Mac and Funkadelic and Doobie Brothers and stuff like that. And then at night I would go out and shoot punk rock. (laughs) That's great. That That sounds like good times. Funkadelic to the germs. Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, I've I've had, you know, I've been in a a prison. No, I wasn't in prison, but I've been in a prison (laughs) in Rahway Prison in New Jersey doing the Lifers Group, it was called. Mm. It was these rappers that were in there for life for murder. I mean, Mm. I've been all over the place shooting music, you know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's taken you literally around the world. It totally has, yeah. 
definitely has. So, Penelope, if you had to choose, uh, what sounds are closest to your heart? You know, what would you take to the desert island of, uh, you know, would it be the metal stuff? Would it be the uh, the punk stuff? You know, would it be, I mean, mm, you did a That's Oz a really Fest interesting question. That's an interesting question. Uh, desert island, uh, boombox. Let me concentrate here. Um, I'm going to say Japanese Zen music. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not kidding. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, here's the thing. Me and my boyfriend, uh, who was a gutter punk on Decline 3 that I've known for 20 years, we went out on the OzFest with Sharon and Ozzy. And I said to my boyfriend a couple a couple years ago, I'm like, how come we don't go out to concerts anymore? And he goes, well, once you've been to 30 cities on the OzFest, you don't even care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose you can overdose after a while. Well, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, I'll, every once in a while I'll throw on some punk rock or some metal or some Norman Greenbaum, uh, Spirit in the Sky or whatever, <laughs> you know. But it's not like I've got to have my punk rock. I, I feel like at heart I am a punk, you know. That's just what I am. But I don't sit around, you know, listening to punk all day and spitting at people. Well, as a documentarian, you, you said you wanted to learn about these cultures, about you know what made them tick. Why did people? Why were people motivated to, to form, to create in this way, a clearly non-commercial way? Um, what, what did you learn about the punks after after you did uh, the first Decline movie? Well, you know, back then everybody was just trying to change things because you got to remember it was disco all over the place. And music sucked, and and look at the clothes. I mean, look at people's hair. You know, what I mean, it's like they just wanted to flip it on its um, head, you know, and just change things, everything. And so music changed uh, because of, I think because of punk rock. I think attitude toward women changed. I think politics changed. I think so many different things. It's certainly a different visual today. When you drive down the street and you see some kid on a skateboard, you know, he looks the way he does because of punk rock, you know? Mm-hmm. And these bands were, you know, kind of out there on a limb. I think they they lived very, uh, they were, uh, you know, not law, they were not viewed as law-abiding citizens. They were viewed as a threat. Oh, people um, were afraid of them back Yeah, then. the audience was yeah. afraid. The, the 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 police were, you know, out to get them. That that was kind of the viewpoint in the, the culture. parents were about ready to just <laughs> kill themselves. Mm, you know? Right, mm. right. Because um, the visual of a punk rock back then was shocking. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. punk rock person back then it was just like you just it was f- sent fear through the straight people, and that's exactly what they wanted to do. Why do you wear those clothes like that? Uncomfortable. At one time, maybe I was considered different, but now I'm in a comfortable lifestyle, and I can be myself. Everyone's hair should be blue because that's the best color. It looks it looks so good. You know, like when I when I first showed um, the decline, the very first screening was at the Writers Guild, and and the lady stood up after I um, after the film was over, and she said, "How dare you glorify these heathens?" <laughs> <laughs> Tipper Gore was her name, actually. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was with the second film. <laughs> yeah. And, and did you, as a woman, Penelope, um, did you ever have any trouble connecting, whether it's the hyper macho Kiss, you know, uh, or, or or any of the punk bands? I mean, they they just seemed awkward around women. You know, the metal, uh, many of those metal bands that that you dealt with, not not Saint Lemmy, but you know. Aerosmith and Kiss, I mean, they Actually, were... it's funny you mentioned Lemmy, because I would say that in all 
I, I love Lemmy, okay? In all of the, of the musicians I've ever dealt with, he's the only one that tried to strangle me, literally. <laughs> wow. I know. We're laughing, but that sounds serious. That sounds like well, a compliment. You thought you were an I equal. Have, I think that might be a compliment, yeah, but, but it, it was freaky because it was, took me up, you know, uh, by surprise. I was just finished shooting, and somebody actually took a picture of it, and, and that's why I, I'm for sure it happened because he grabbed me from behind and started strangling me with his elbow around my neck. And I'm, wow. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if this is love or hate, but it sure is freaky. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but so, so so you were dealing with so many sexually awkward uh, young boys, you know, and that brings us back to Wayne's World too. How do you <laughs> how do you relate, you know, to these two doofuses, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in their basement who who talk about sex a lot, but you know they're not getting any. <laughs> Swing. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Uh, uh, how do I relate? Well. I mean, I was uh, the oldest of four children. My sister's a lesbian, and I have two brothers, so I just felt like one of the guys. You know, I think just coming up, I was—I always have my head underneath the hood of a car. You know, mm-hmm. I can fix anything on a car, by the way, if anybody has a car breakdown. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just one of the dudes, you know, and I think that's probably why I do better with boy movies than girl movies. I mean, they would—they sent me, you know, like— um, Oh, what was that? Did that uh, legally Blonde, okay? And I <laughs> I read it, and I'm like, I don't get this. Yeah. You know, I really, I, I, I can't relate. And they they hounded me to um, direct it, and I said, I'm sorry, I, I just don't understand. Um, but I do better with dude movies. Yeah, I don't know why. It's interesting, too, um, you know, talking about relating, because obviously you did the punk scene, but uh, you had talked about in previous interviews, Penelope, about how Decline 2 uh, decline part two uh, about the metal scene in LA really helped uh, create sort of a template for you for how to understand these two suburban dudes who are into this kind of metally music mm-hmm. in Wayne's World. Uh, mm-hmm. In Wayne's yeah. World, um, uh, what was that connection like? Did you feel like getting to know these LA scenesters on the Hollywood Strip, trying to desperately get a record contract? with the big hair, and they all looked alike in some ways, uh, all behaved mm-hmm. the same way. What, were the, what was the connection between these two mythical guys who were in their Aurora basement? Well, that is a very, very good question, and a very, um, which I say, astute to, to put those things together. But here's the thing, and I don't think I've ever told anybody this before. Um, Wayne and Garth um, thought they were headbangers. I mean, like their characters in the movie and kind of off camera as well. But having just stepped out of the real scene, I kind of had to like go along with it and go, yeah, sure guys, you're headbangers. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, but not really. But I knew that they're not the real thing, but I was just sort of going along with it. And maybe that's part of what made the, made the charm happen. I don't know. Well, that, I, what you're getting at I think, is a sort of naive innocence. They were fans, mm-hmm. and they were trying mm-hmm. to act like these heroes that go. they saw on That's what it is. the TV screen, but they really yeah. couldn't be those guys ever, and yeah. that was, the, that was right. the joy of it. Right? Neither Wayne nor yeah. Garth would ever be Gene Simmons. <laughs> no, no, and I think you hit on something there because people always ask, you know, what is it about Wayne's World? And I think it is that innocence. It's that 
um, joie de vivre, if you want to say it, where, you know, you're at a certain age and you think uh, the whole world is butterflies and flowers and it's, you know, you're going to just go out there and, and live the most wonderful life ever and then you start to learn about reality. But before that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. before that, you're like Wayne and Garfin, really, really um, uh, optimistic. And I think it's their optimism that is their charm. Okay, I still live with my parents, which I admit is both bogus and sad. But at least I've got an amazing cable access show. And I still know how to party. But what I'd really love is to do Wayne's World for a living. It might happen. Yeah, and monkeys might fly out of my butt. Yeah, and the fandom. You know, they live for this and that music. And they're fans. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when we took it, like when I took out um, Decline on the road recently and um, to the um, theatrical uh, art house uh, circuit, people would come up to me and, and honestly, that sometimes they would be crying. They would put their arms around me and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me. Thank you for, for mm. doing the movie and helping me uh, figure out who I was when mm. I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it, it was harder when those movies came out to connect with these worlds if you weren't mm-hmm. living somewhere hip like New York or Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You're living in Montana. Mm-hmm. This is going to open your eyes. Well, on that uh, box that we did, and I'm not trying to sell them, believe me, but um, <laughs> uh, Dave Grohl does the voiceover for Decline One, and he said that's what happened to him. Is yeah. His cousin, he, he went and visited his cousin um, in a different state, and she was like, hey, man, come here. i got to show you this thing. It was like contraband, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it had, had a... <laughs> had a video cassette of the first decline. It was like, check this out. And it's like really opened his eyes. And that's why he's got Pat Smear in his band. You right, know? right, right, right. He has told that story. Actually, she lived oh, in Chicago. He? he came here. See, yeah. it's the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the break, we'll be back with more of our conversation with Penelope Spheris, where we'll discuss that iconic Bohemian Rhapsody headbanging scene. Later, Jim's going to put a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Jim, what do you got for us? Greg, I have one of the best songs of teenage angst and melodrama ever. I don't even want to tip my hand yet. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. I see a little silhouette of a man. He's got a moose, got a moose. Will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Galileo. 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 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's part of the Bohemian Rhapsody scene from the 1992 film Wayne's World. Everybody loves that scene. Directed by our guest today, Penelope Spheris. 25 years later, this movie is still extremely beloved, especially because of that goofy moment in Garth's Pacer, the Mirthmobile, seeing Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. I almost owned a Pacer at one point. Once, once you're in that, uh, in that scene, you cannot stop watching that movie. Now, we had read that that scene almost didn't happen, so we asked Penelope whether that was true. No, not at all, huh? Good. No. I love to debunk these stories because the story no, no. the story goes uh, that, that it, you wanted yeah. Guns N' Roses and Myers no. pushed okay. for Queen. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know why that's hilarious? Because it is so opposite of true. Let me. Here's the thing: Guns N' Roses were supposed to be in decline too, and they were going to close the movie. And their manager pulled out at the last second, and I was so. Uh, Slash was down with it. Uh, Axel was down with it. It was all going to happen, and they pulled out, and therefore I got Megadeth. Okay, so I do Wayne's World as my next movie. Now, do you think that I'm going to go and ask <laughs> Guns and Roses <laughs> to be in my effing movie? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, hell with <laughs> and, uh, yeah, screw those dudes. And actually, lately I saw Slash, and he apologized that they, you know, <laughs> yeah, didn't yeah. do it. But um, you know, life is what it is. But no, if um, if somebody made that story up, sounds like Mike or something. But um, no, I never, I never wanted Guns and Roses in the movie. Um, so he wanted what, Aerosmith. And he wanted of course Aerosmith. He, mm. Well, for the for the performance piece, right. you know, that Alice did, and they appeared in the second one. Mm-hmm. That I did not appear in. A vastly inferior sequel. <laughs> yeah, nobody remembers vastly, that movie, Penelope. Nobody, so, no. Uh, <laughs> there should not have been a Wayne's World yeah. 2, no. <laughs> well, not so quick anyway, you know. Yeah. All right, so so was it your idea for, for Bohemian Rhapsody from the beginning? No, it wasn't my idea. And um, see, that's the thing about punk rockers. See, I told you I'm a punk rocker at heart. We tell the truth, okay? I ain't, <laughs> ain't flowering nothing up here. Uh <laughs> Uh, it was not my idea. It was Mike's idea, and it was written into the script when I got the script, and I shot it. I will say this. He wasn't real happy when I made him bang his head for six hours. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he did, I have read he, that. And he did maintain that it wasn't funny, but um, the fact is he was being a good actor, and he followed the direction, and he did it, and it, it's the scene everybody remembers. Yeah, you know? It wouldn't work without the head banging. That's absolutely necessary. Yeah, that was, that, that was critical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, gotta, the song is too long. you got to do something. It's like nine yeah, minutes yeah, long, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, did you did you relate to the song? Because you know, the one thing that I think was extraordinary about that is it basically gave Queen a second life. I mean, Freddie Mercury was dying. The band was effectively a non-entity for a number of years um, on the charts, and mm-hmm. that sent him. You know, that started a whole new round of Queen appreciation and mm-hmm. sales. Oh, I mean, it sold records. It, it that's not down. the yeah. kind of song that you'd put in there and thinking, oh, people are going to re- instantly relate to this because this, this that song really hadn't been part of the the culture for for a number of years. I mean, it was a '70s yeah. hit. So how yeah. did you how did how did you think that was going to work in, in that scene? This is a critical well, scene. You're setting the stage for first, this movie. To answer your first question, yes, I always loved Queen. Um, 
and I didn't even question that it worked it would work in the film um I didn't think it would work as well as it did that's for darn sure Mm -hmm. here's the thing about the movie and the music it it all came together in some sort of magical way where the planets were lined up right, the chemistry of the right people were together, everybody was at the peak of their game. You know, it just, there's very seldom in life that things line up like that. Wayne's World was, was a magical moment. And this guy says to me, he goes, don't you think that just because you had that big hit with Wayne's World that every movie you do now is going to be a big hit like that? And I thought, you watch me, brother. But here's the thing. He was right. Mm-hmm. It, it's a kind of thing. It only happens once in a lifetime, I think. And, um, you know, I certainly don't take credit for the whole movie or for any of it, really. I mean, I was in the right place at the right time. My name is Wayne Campbell. I live in Aurora, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Excellent. Other rumors about the movie, okay? A lot of people we talk to still think that movie was shot in Aurora. Uh, Illinois, the suburb. I feel so bad for uh, them. They embrace it because it's the, you know, they're wearing the Blackhawks jerseys when they're playing street hockey. So they think this is a Chicago movie. You know what? I got in trouble recently because I heard, uh, you know, they did the re-release of the DVDs in um, in February. And I heard they were having a celebration in Aurora. And I thought, that's great. I'm so happy about that. And then I heard it was going to be a six-month celebration. Oh, man. <laughs> And it was going to end on July 4th, and I thought, with a headbanging contest, and and I said publicly, and I'm actually embarrassed that I said it, but I'm going to say it again just to to make sure I'm really embarrassed. I said, don't they have any strawberries or pumpkins to celebrate? (laughs) And I I got in trouble for that. So I want to officially apologize to all you Aurora-uns. Now, Myers has has said, uh, apparently, his suburban upbringing in Canada evoked this kind of a scene to him. Do you you have a a sense of why Aurora was the the spot where mythically he was going to be doing this show from? I, I mean, I remember them saying we have to just get something that is so uh, typically suburban and what could it be? And there was a bunch of talk about it, you know, and actually the funniest thing was the writers and Mike were so concerned about the look of the house that Mike lived in. And I must have looked at 50 houses in the valley, you know, um, out here, uh, not in Aurora. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um and they all look alike. Okay, exactly alike. And I just picked one. What the hell? I'll just take this one. Uh, and so everybody like tries to find that house now. Mm, uh-huh. I think it's cool. It's actually a really, really uh, big compliment that people care that much about the movie. And I know that there's like a website that shows where all the locations really were. And you know, I I'm proud that people think it was shot in Aurora because that means you know we did a good job as filmmakers. There are a lot of memorable cameos in Wayne's World. Chris Farley, Alice Cooper, Ed O'Neill. But I want to take a minute to talk about Meatloaf. (laughs) He makes an appearance in the film as a bouncer outside a club. How did you come up, Penelope, with the idea of putting the immortal Meatloaf in your movie? You know, I was actually at a party before Meatloaf became really, really famous. And he was there, and he was wearing this big trench coat. And there was a whole bunch of, like, buffet-type food on the table. And I watched him 
pick up pork chops and put in, in his, his pockets. Pocket. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to find little cameos, you know, and um, it could have well been my idea to have meatloaf in there. I'm not going to take credit for it because I'm not a thousand percent sure. Um, but we just wanted little cameos all along the place, you know, mm-hmm. and so meatloaf. Wait, hey, hey you doing? Hey. Yeah. hey, Tiny, who's playing today? Jolly Green Giants, Beatles. The Beatles, are they any good? They suck. But it's not just a clever name. How about uh, Alice Cooper, We're Not Worthy, and that whole thing? It's just so brilliant. Well, you know, I had just worked with Alice doing a music video for... Um, my old buddy, God bless him, uh, Wes Craven for that mm. Shocker video. And and I worked with Alice and I worked with um, Dave Mustaine there. And oh, um, I, I, had, I had worked with Alice and wanted to have him in the film because uh, Aerosmith didn't want to do the movie because I think they didn't think it was very cool. Yeah, and yeah. Whereas Alice so, has a great sense of humor. Well, that's the thing is, man, we we slammed him with, like, you know, two pages of dialogue. He thought he was just going to sit there and look freaky and then sing a song, which he's really good at doing both, but then he had to do the dialogue. But, you know, he stepped it up. Alice, is this cool? Yeah, come on in. Sorry to bother you, but we have to come and tell you how much we really enjoyed the show, didn't we, Garth? <laughs> oh, thanks. We're not mental or anything, so don't be afraid. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! But lately, I talked to Alice, and he told me after all these years, he was a little bit upset about something in the movie. Mm. And I said, my goodness, we never want to upset Alice. What was it? He goes, that you put a snake on Cassandra. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, man, we totally blew it. You're right. It was a total subconscious decision. We weren't trying to rip you off, man. I wanted to riff on that because you're you're dropping these names like Alice and Meatloaf and uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned Axel and Slash like they were personal friends of yours and oh yeah how did I, you I know how did you relate to all these um, these characters I mean they're not well here's people the that thing. let you into their world that easily you know uh, and yet you seem to have developed a relationship with all of them yeah because I'm not the hottest taco on the fiesta platter okay (laughs) so they don't really look at me like they're gonna get laid later Mm. and that's really back in those days that's what it was all about Mm -hmm. okay so you know they just kind of and i don't and i don't you know i don't do i just dress in a black leather jacket and black i don't do it up you know Mm -hmm. and so they just kind of treat me like one of the guys and that's fine with me because i can get my work done that way well, it certainly holds up. I mean, you know, it's one of those movies where I think it, w- it was kind of thought of as maybe a goof, uh, you know, at the start, and now it's uh-huh. become this iconic film for multiple generations of <laughs> of people, you know? I know. Uh, you know, to the point where people are dressing up like the characters in a way that's uh, that's sort yeah. of timeless, you know? But it, yeah, really, it, really, it really sounds like you were saying, Penelope, that, that, that Decline 1 is the one that you'd rather, you, you'd have first on your tombstone. Oh yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah. Uh, We're with well, you. Well, actually, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna back that up. Decline three, because for me, decline three is um, I don't know the most important movie I've made just because of the social statement with regard to uh, homeless kids on on the street. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so from, and also that's where I met the love of my life, Sin, mm. S-I-N. And he's um, from Florida and he was a train ride and gutter punk. And let me tell you something, I sure did learn a lot about just survivalism. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. a survivalist after being with him for 20 years. That's yeah, I need no. I need no luxury and want no luxury. <laughs> I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. well. Yeah, that's where you started, and then you wind up. Yeah, back yeah. There. I'm yeah. comfortable being poor, even though I have like a load of money. I'm really comfortable being poor. Can I swear? I'm sorry. Oh yeah, it's public radio. That's fine. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a complete honor and privilege talking to Penelope Spheris. Thank you so much, Penelope. Oh, thank you guys in in uh, Chicago. Do rock on. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, guys, party on. That wraps up our conversation with the brilliant Penelope Spheris, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite scene in Wayne's World? What is it, and why do you love it? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island. Speeding out there at this very moment is Jim DeRigatis to play a track he cannot live without. Jim, what do you got? I can't live without it, but you may well be able to. Um, You know, though I often mention the name Meatloaf on this show, especially in relation to Bruce Springsteen, I went back in the archives, and, and I very seldom have actually played the music of Meatloaf. And there are two good reasons to do it. One, we had just been talking to Penelope Spheris about that Meatloaf cameo in Wayne's World. The other is you weren't there, but everyone else on the Sound Opinion staff, uh, we had a a family band night uh, because uh, two of our producers uh, have musical projects and I, you know, play drums in a punk rock band. So all the bands played at the hideout and we had a great time. But Evan Chung blew my mind. He is a fantastic bassist, and he had a, what was it, six or seven piece meatloaf tribute band. <laughs> I'm telling you, Cot, they played Paradise by the Dashboard Light, and it was perfect. All right? I had actually forgotten. I think I, I have come to love meatloaf since discovering him at age 13. I've come to forget that every meatloaf song is approximately seven and a half times longer than it should be, mm-hmm. and there's about 13 false yep. endings. I'm telling you, they had every one. They had every false ending, every <laughs> crescendo, every cliche. So i got to play some meatloaf. I'm sorry. You know, they pointed out on stage, and I think they were quoting me as they did it, that Todd Rundgren, who produced this record, one of the giant producers of all time, very consciously saw it as an answer record to Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Now, Springsteen is doing teen melodrama and angst in a 50s-based, blown-up-to-operatic Phil Spector way, right? Meatloaf is doing that, but they're a cartoon. You know, Springsteen was serious about it. Uh, At least Rundgren and Max Weinberg and Roy Bitten from the E Street Band who play on the record. Mm -hmm. You know, I think they all saw The Loaf as a cartoon. I know that Rundgren's bandmates in Utopia, who completed the band, Kasim Sultan, Roger Powell, uh, John uh, Willie Wilcox, right? They all saw this as as a cartoon, and it was a fantastic cartoon. I don't know. Marvin Lee Day probably took it seriously. Certainly Jim, Jim Steinman, who wrote it all, right, took it seriously. 
but I don't know how you take meatloaf seriously. I, I'm going to play all revved up with no place to go. And I will stay out on this limb that meatloaf is better than Springsteen and even go further. I don't know, Greg, if there is better writing in the opening of any rock song ever. I was nothing but a lonely boy looking for something new. And you were nothing but a lonely girl, but you were something, something like a dream come true. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? That's profound, brother. When you're 13, that is profound. Well, it's it's profound at at soon to be 53. (laughs) I make no apologies for loving the loaf. Here it is, all revved up with no place to go. This one's for Evan on Sound Opinions. up with no place to go from Meatloaf's immortal classic, Bat Out of Hell, 1977. I won't go near Bat Out of Hell, too. Edgar Winter on saxophone on that song. I didn't even know he played sax. What do we have on the show next week, Mr. Cott? Next week, Jim, we are digging up some buried treasures. We're going to play some music that's under the mainstream radar, but that we can't live without. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, and our intern, Isabella Martin. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. This is Matt from Langhorn, Pennsylvania. Calling in response to your last episode, more specifically the um, the choice of review, that being the new Public Enemy album. We're in a really good year for hip-hop, and in the last couple weeks to a month, there have been some pretty amazing albums in the genre. For example, uh, a late career gem from Jay-Z. I just want to see you smile the wall of hey, Maria Antoinette, baby, let her meet Kate. The new Tyler, the Creator album, the new Vince Staples album, which has some of the most just mind-melting production you'll hear all year. And yet, you haven't reviewed any of these. And yet, you do decide to review a couple of dinosaurs who have nothing really to say anymore. You know, just, just my opinion. Love the show. Keep it up. You guys rock. Thanks. Elvin songs and... 
last nights Sweet wine and soft Relaxing lights Hi, this is Tom from Hastings on Hudson, New York. And I appreciated your show on fantasy and rock and roll. And I wanted to recommend the Rush song Rivendell. Many people, when they think of Rush, they think of the epic fantasy tunes and suites from the early and middle part of Rush's career. But early on, on the Fly By Night record, they had a beautiful, moving little song called Rivendell. I was uh, a teenager getting into Rush. My friends and I were really intrigued with this song. It was kind of a deep track for us, a secret favorite for us. Uh, you would never put it on in the presence of other people, but when you got together uh, with hardcore young Rush fans, it was always like, oh, Rivendell, what's going on with that song? Isn't that a very special little thing? Uh, I love the show, and I appreciate the increasing number of Rush references in the last several years. Saul calling from Philadelphia. Recently heard your episode about fantasy and uh, music. Uh, one that you may have overlooked if you, or forgotten about was Christopher Lee's heavy metal album that he recorded about King Charlemagne. Definitely worth investigating. Uh, thank you for your time, and I'll be seeing you. Bye. Paul calling from Philly about fantasy and records and music. Suzanne Vega, her first album, just about every song on that thing is some type of fantasy, including one about a relationship between a medieval queen and a medieval uh, common soldier. And uh, it's a beautiful album, everything about it. Suzanne Vega, first album. Thank you. Soldier came knocking upon the queen's door. He said, I am not fighting for you anymore. And the queen knew she'd seen his face someplace before. And slowly she led him inside. He said, I watched your. Good morning, guys. This is Brian in Beverly Hills, Michigan. I was out for a run listening to your podcast on fantasy music. And I flash back to 1975. My high school girlfriend was an absolute Uriah Heap freak. So I got tickets to go see them at Cobo Hall in Detroit. And uh, her favorite album by them, and actually one of my favorites, that's pretty obvious fitting into this category, Demons and Wizards, and the song The Wizard on that album. We had a great time at the concert. I still remember it to this day, although I have no idea where my high school girlfriend is. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.